Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, Som and I talk about India's most successful export since spices and chicken tikka masala. Our Prime Minister Narendra Modi on his recent visit to Houston. And then we talk about the newly created post of a Chief of Defence Staff and why it has taken India more than 72 years to bring this post back. On Independence Day this year, um, our Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, announced the position of the Chief of Defence Staff, um, a position that has been for close to 20 years now. And uh, I think the first reactions that kind of came out uh, across media and people was that this was just another uh, strongman move from a strongman government. Uh, but I think what we want to kind of delve into today is some of the history, some of the context behind uh, this position, uh, what it means for the uh, armed forces. And uh, I think we'll begin with Uday, a, a history of this uh, uh, position and when this conversation really began, because my history takes me, I mean, my mind takes me back to uh, the Kargil war. Um, but I, I know that some of your formative thoughts around this go back uh, much before this. So why don't we just kind of begin with where it all kind of began? So uh, it goes back to the army and the armed forces that India inherited when we got our independence. And it was the british indian army which we inherited of course divided between india and pakistan but we also what we inherited was the decision making apparatus that uh, lay in the british indian army and uh, the position of a chief of a single staff or armed service actually didn't exist what existed was a, was an all powerful military post called the commander in chief in fact the last uh, chief of what now we would call the chief of army staff uh, field marshal uh, cloud ocean like he was in fact known as the supreme commander of india and pakistan till he left his post so it was always called a commander in chief and its equivalence would be with a five star general so field marshal and not just a four star general like all our uh, service chiefs currently are crucially this was also a very important position in terms of the order of the raj itself uh, it was probably the second most powerful office in india after the office so they had all these commanders in chief had a seat at the high table and uh, when india won her independence of course nehru's uh, mistrust of the military is very well known to uh, all of us so one of the first moves that uh, he brought in was to demote or abolish this post of the commander in chief it was one of lord mountbatten's recommendations that india continue to have a commander in chief but nehru and all his wisdom he did away with it he wanted the power to reside with the military and we've seen some uh, really flattering comparisons vis-a-vis pakistan where say they had about two army chiefs in their first 10 years and uh, had about five prime ministers and we had one prime minister and five or six army chiefs so in a way nehru was successful there but the key tenets that he dismembered with the abolition of the post was that he did away with a very powerful five star office he uh, in fact he went so far as to move into the former residence of the commander in chief at teen murthy bhavan it's now been turned into a museum 
and the seat at the high table of decision making in strategic affairs and foreign policy this seat at the table was lost to the military with this move and another crucial move which i don't think many uh, observers have paid attention to is the fact that the tenures of uh, service chiefs it was drastically shortened so commanders in chief of the british indian army were used to spending about 5 or 6 years in office whereas now the longest we've seen a chief serve would probably be general bipin rawat and even he'll retire before he completes three and a half years so these were the three changes that got in and never truly left till like you said uh, the kargil war committee recommendations were made in 2000 so um what what does this really mean for the armed forces now going forward i mean i think there's just been so much of uh, conjecture around um how this is really consolidating of uh, power and uh, centralizing of forces and um, i think that there needs to be a, a little bit more uh, understanding of what the bjp government's vision around the armed forces is um across policy from you know intelligence to to the defense forces itself uh keeping in mind you know our threats uh, across both borders uh, so what what really is the vision uh, you know around this from from the perspective of the government uh see purely from a military perspective like you you and i both alluded to uh, its recommendation went back to the aftermath of the kargil war and back then one of the keenest flaws in what politicians or at least the committee was very keen to rectify was inter services coordination which in the initial stages of the war as we spoke a couple of episodes ago was actually quite poor so to rectify that one of the recommendations made was that the chief of defense staff the office of the chief of defense staff is instituted and of course immediately the bureaucrats went into a tizzy the politicians went into a tizzy because there's this historic mistrust that the polity has of the armed forces and honestly neither party has learned to work with one another very well the politicians are and they don't know a thing about how the military does its thing its traditions its uh, the uh, policies and the honor that they hold in most of these traditions that's entirely lost on the polity and the armed forces uh, even to save their life probably couldn't get around uh, raking mud in politics so i think there's a historic mistrust on both sides so the bureaucrats and the politicians never let it come to pass that such an office will be created because the immediate vision was that it would lead to an all powerful military and it would lead to a creation of a five star office so crucially i think with this move what the government has done is that they've decoupled a couple of these issues so with moves that they made in 2018 december what they did was they truly empowered the office of the nsa the national security advisor and its current occupant ajit doval we now know him uh as of course the architect of india's kashmir policy along with amit shah and also the fact that he's been given a cabinet berth but back in uh, december 2018 he did not have a cabinet berth but still many powers were concentrated in his office the strategic policy group was resuscitated and ajit doval was placed at its chairman uh the defense procurement committee was uh partly reconstituted and ajit doval was made the chair of that committee too so these moves are part of an overall 
matrix where there's increasing need for both inter-services coordination, but also inter-agency coordination. So what the government has done is obviously place the chairmanship, the leadership, the coordination aspect of uh, all the intelligence and civil services with the office of the NSA. And I think in time, what they will do is that they will let go of uh, the Defense Procurement Committee or the Defense Planning Commission, the, D- uh, the Planning Committee, the DPC. They will let go of this, chairing this uh, committee from the ambit of the NSA and place it with the CDS. The aim being that the Chief of Defense Staff ensures better inter-services coordination and more than the response to threats, the response in, in the form of a conventional war, it's also meant to streamline our procurement, our planning and our training, which is either duplicated or triplicated if you take uh, all the three uh, service arms of the armed forces. Right. So um, I think from, from the perspective of, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've mentioned our neighbors, uh, I think... Uh, you know, I, I've read uh, somewhere that, uh, you know, China seems to uh, look at centralization of decision-making, uh, strategic command and control uh, so much uh, more efficiently, right? And how they've kind of built out a lot of decision-making around uh, the threats uh, that they have, right? Which is primarily uh, in the Indian Ocean and uh, against India itself. Um, do you see some of that uh, kind of being a part of uh, decision-making by the CDS, you know, changes there? Are we going to see it in terms of uh, procurement? What is going to be day-to-day thinking and decision-making for this uh, role? I think day-to-day, the moment the CDS will assume this office, so we're talking obviously in the short term, what the CDS is expected or will do uh, on his first few days in office. Uh, The first thing would definitely be defense procurement. And we've seen a few of these moves happen. I think another thing which uh, flew under the radar was uh, a major general was appointed as the CEO of the Army Ordnance Factory, which makes uh, the AK-203 series of rifles. So these moves have already been afoot. So the first thing a CDS will be required to do is streamline defense procurement. Now, of course, this will step on the toes of bureaucrats. This will step on the toes of uh, various ministers. So it the CDS will have his, uh, his task cut out for him because it will require a much better coordination with uh, these other two uh, stakeholders in the defense procurement process. They think the second would be training. Uh, you would want better interoperability between your uh, forces. But I think some of these, uh, the comments that you made on China's integrated battle theater groups, uh, I think we'll only see that, uh, you know, many, many years, if not decades into the future. Because what, the way China looks at it is obviously there, for example, say, if they had an Eastern command, it would not be three separate Eastern commands for the Army, Navy, and Air Force. There would just be one three-star general equivalent holding the post of uh, the Eastern Theater Command. So there would be no Eastern Army commander, Eastern Air Force commander. There would just be one three-star which who helms all these three services. And if India is to move in that direction, it would take many, many years, if not decades, all militaries are around the world are conservative establishments. 
very slow and resistant to change. So I think to push through some of that will require many decades. You'll need senior officers who have been bred in a in an environment of interoperability. In fact, if we just go back to India's first experiment, setting up a combined command, it was the ANC, the Andaman and Nicobar command. And the uh, the command of this ANC was supposed to be cycled between the three services, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Very quickly, the Navy came in and said that, oh, you know what, it's the Andaman and Nicobar command. The, the commander of this ANC should always be a naval three-star. An army general has no business being uh, beheading the ANC. And that was very quickly accepted. And the similar examples replete across the three services. What has happened in the past 70 years is that each service arm has thrived in an environment of single service primacy. The chief of army staff essentially has no competition uh, in, with respect to his command and control of his army. So this single service primacy environment has bred a generation of officers uh, generations of officers, in fact, who have been very happy to operate within these confines because they hold primacy. So if they have to give up this primacy, if there's actually a CDS who tomorrow might be uh, an admiral and he's looking at the army and uh, hoping to institute reforms, I think the army would be very stiffly resistant to that and, of course, vice versa. So I think it will take many years, if not decades, for some of these longer-term goals to come to fruition. But such these moves are now afoot. We spoke about the Armed Forces Special Operations Division, and we spoke about how it would be headed, obviously, being a division by a two-star general, not three-star. So increasingly, we will have to set up institutions where there is interoperability, uh, an admiral is leading uh, an overwhelmingly army-manned uh, establishment. I think we will have to... the all the three services and the nation and the bureaucrats will have to stomach a lot of these reforms because India's response to threats, India's evolving threat matrix, we cannot have all these arms exist in silos and try to respond to threats. The biggest benefit, in fact, that we've seen of the concentration of powers with the NSA is that now we have a very coherent policy with respect to, say, deterrence, with respect to punitive punishment, with respect to security, if you look at the past five or six year, five or six years of uh, BJP one and two in both its incarnations ruling, there have hardly been any terror attack worth note outside of Kashmir. And if we remember the last few years of the previous decade, it had turned into a monthly occurrence. We had Jaipur, Ahmedabad, Pune, Hyderabad, multiple Delhi blasts, multiple Bombay blasts. So. We've seen some of the benefits of uh, concentrating powers, decision-making, and of course, the responsibility and the accountability that comes with uh, holding and wielding such power. We've seen the benefits of that. So it's only hope that something similar can be seen within the armed forces as well. And crucially, of course, the CDS will be a four-star uh, general or admiral or air chief marshal. It will not be a five-star position. I think that's right. And the bureaucrats and the politicians will still continue to hold sway. But I think where this move should lead is hopefully in time, the CDS having a much bigger voice at the table on, say, strategic affairs, on foreign policy, because there is the defense budget is the price you pay for your foreign policy. So eventually, if we have to come to that juncture, I think this is a good starting step, but it will take uh, many decades for us to achieve achieve complete interoperability and uh, cohesion within the three services.
So I guess uh, small steps at a time. Uh, I mean, it did take us nearly twenty years to uh, institute this position, um, and we're yet to see who the first CDS is going to be. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think we all need to understand that uh, what the larger uh, picture is, and uh, you know, before we kind of begin to react to moves made by this government. But I think it really needs to be seen as moves for the future of the armed forces. Uh, in its kind of quest to you know modernize uh, both from a you know equipment perspective all the way down to the way we look at uh, how we strategize uh, to the personnel decisions. Uh, uh, so obviously, um, I'm sure we're going to do uh, another segment on the day we find who the uh, selected CDS will be. I'm sure that will be a very interesting decision for this government to make uh, amongst uh, so many others they have to make in the next uh, hundred days of the government. um so until until that uh, decision is made um, we will uh, return with more so there just a couple of uh, weeks ago u2 confirmed its participation uh, for concert at the end of the year uh, and obviously there is this crazy excitement everyone's trying to get u2 tickets uh made me think about our very own uh, self-made indian rockstar who recently uh, managed to cross uh, the seas and uh, fill up a stadium all by himself in the us uh, so i mean obviously i'm talking about modi and i don't think he's gotten such an introduction in a while uh, comparing him to u2 but uh, um, i think i just wanted to kind of dig a little deeper into the whole uh, howdy modi uh, event that happened in the us uh, i think everyone's been really positioning it as another chest thumping a few hours by the uh, prime minister uh, but i think there is a lot uh, of texture beyond that uh, so i think first off uh, one of the questions i have had uh, since hearing about the entire trip um, since uh, modi has been there and uh, whatever his entire travels across the us were his speaking engagements uh, i think one thing that comes across very strongly is that uh, i think the rules have changed um the way it was played out uh, at least from an indian context uh, from uh, previous governments uh, has surely changed uh, i think a lot of also comes from the fact that uh, a lot of the new uh, power centers across the world i mean whether it's uh, trump or whether it is uh, even boris johnson in whatever limited role he's playing as prime minister uh, uh it's quite interesting to see how uh the direction of address has become extremely direct uh there is no more uh, you know building out these itineraries that used to happen with previous prime ministers in india um generally a trip to the us would involve you know a meet and greet at camp david with the president there would be uh, some formalities at the white house where uh, the extended entourage would meet uh, counterparts uh, on the american side you know from the external affairs minister um there would be a lot of these joint agreements signed there would be the standard press conferences at the end where both the presidents would shake hands in this really a uh, fake show of love and appreciation for each other and even if it was genuine then clearly they didn't know how to express themselves in front of cameras <laughs> but i think overall uh, this trip was a complete and and so have some of his previous trips uh, where he's filled smaller stadiums and smaller gatherings in in comparison to this 50000 uh, which he has managed to fill up in houston uh, i mean he has done 
Uh, he has filled up 19, 20,000 in Madison Square Garden. Another one in uh, Silicon Valley also. Uh, but I think what's unprecedented about this is that one, just purely in terms of numbers, uh, the last head of state outside of uh, Modi who has managed to fill up larger numbers has been the Pope, if we can call him a head of state. Uh, and uh, I think the fact that the Indian government, the PMO, decided to do this in Houston, I think it's a show of what uh, the Indian diaspora uh, means to Modi, and we'll kind of go deeper into that through the conversation. Uh, but I think the rules have changed, uh, and and I find that uh, interesting. I find uh, nobody in the diplomatic circles or journalistic circles really calling that out. Um, and uh, I think the era of having like this large layer of uh, formal diplomacy, uh, of having uh, uh, diplomats take the first step uh, forward in planning out these trips, and then the leaders being the face and voice through and through, uh, but everything being so measured is over. Uh, I think the other part of just, and, and I just found this a little bit more uh, hilarious, and I'm sure American citizens might not, but the fact that the American president was playing pretty much second fiddle to Modi in his own country, in what is a Republican backyard, uh, but all for the sake of what felt like a early presidential rally for Trump, uh, but this time not being endorsed by uh, fellow senators, but being endorsed by the head of state of another country uh, in, in front of uh, a, a possible vote bank that uh, the Republicans have not really had, which is uh, the Indian diaspora in the past. Uh, so I think these factors uh, were very interesting uh, for me. And I think uh, they need to be accepted and kind of analyzed from that lens that um, formal diplomacy is over. Trump already Twitter, uh, but I think uh, the Indian government with uh, Modi at the helm is clearly redefining these boundaries and uh, clearly saying that no country is too big for me to uh, go and fill up a stadium and put out my views out there. Uh, and how this plays out uh, uh, is, is going to be interesting over the uh, next couple of years of the Modi government. Um, I think the other point was really on what are we really exerting through this, right? What kind of power are we exerting? And, you know, there was this interesting thing that Shekhar Gupta mentioned about how China has Chinatowns, you know, to kind of uh, push their soft power in cities across the world. Uh, makes me wonder that is Modi's idea of soft power himself, you know, like, is it that every time I travel uh, and every time I speak, uh, I get a few more uh, Indians and maybe uh, the locals of those countries and the power centers in those countries onto my side and they are able to understand uh, how I'm looking at the India story. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering what, in the long run, how does this really play out for us? If we used to fill up stadiums across the world in Europe, in Western Europe and in the US, um, how does that help the Indian story uh, in, in the larger scheme of things? I think just taking, uh, you know, from that, uh, the last time Modi actually filled up a stadium with uh, 50,000 or more than 50,000 people was actually here in the UK in London. He filled up Wembley, uh, I think, uh, far more than it has been for some of the uh, highlight uh, boxing bouts. So he's clearly been doing this for about six years. And... Uh, 
in his own view he has definitely disintermediated or short circuited this whole uh, foreign policy and foreign affairs circuit which like you said always used to be diplomats usually the uh, residing indian ambassador in the country uh, where the pm was planning to visit he starts the planning uh, he starts the process rolling but that doesn't seem to be the case any longer it is a modi calling the shots and b the minutia of actually uh, you know ringing up an itinerary of uh, bringing the responsible or the corporate heads or senators to the place where modi is actually going to speak that is now the job of the indian diplomats uh, who reside in that country and uh, one other very clear shift has been that while he has entirely short circuited this and we should remember that in a very large way he did something similar in india as well he disintermediated a the press and b the entire bjp machinery in both elections it was just modi reaching out to the people and now he seems to be doing that on a global scale so he seems to be calling upon the indian diaspora in uh, you know either north america or in western europe i'm sure in australia in the years to come and he already did that in his first term so where that leads us going into the future is a the chinese model the fact that you mentioned chinatown is very interesting because chinatown is a very visible symbol of soft power that the chinese hold across the world the chinatowns in pretty much every country all over the world but where i think what misses the eye is that the chinese have a a very deep strategic culture and they don't think of themselves their country and uh, you know them as a people in in decades or centuries or even millennia they think of themselves as a civilizational power and to that end any chinese premier where you know now xi jinping or any emperor in the decades or centuries past they always expected to hold some sway over a chinese person it doesn't matter where the chinese person resides the chinese government expects to have some suzerainty over that chinese person wherever that person may be and i think india has taken a leaf out of that book it might be a giving this current government too much credit they're probably not thinking as far ahead into the future and their only trump card is modi but the way i look at it is that they are now calling out to indians to feel indian wherever they are to feel a part of this indian civilization wherever they are you don't have to be residing in the indian borders to be an indian i think that is the message coming out from uh, the modi's pmo because for many many decades ever since the upper upper middle class and upwardly mobile indian diaspora started emigrating and you know not the forcible uh, migrations which where indians went as slaves to plantations in uh, south africa in the caribbean this new generation the 20th century expansion of uh, indians it has almost entirely the what they give back the country is almost always income is always foreign remittances and it's always to serve a purpose it's always to help the nris build some assets back in india for either for their family or for when they might want to return but i think that conversation is now shifting it's no longer about india needing or wanting remittances from abroad it's india now wanting these indians or you know americans or brits or australians of indian origin 
to fight India's battle in these liberal democracies. I think that is the shift that we're now beginning to see. Maybe 10, 20, 30 years down the line, the expectation is that when the Indian government and when India comes calling, these Indian origin people stand up to be counted. They no longer say that, oh, I'm American. I'm as American as, you know, everybody else, as the Irish Americans, as the Italian Americans. Indians, I think the Indian government doesn't want the Indian diaspora abroad to have that attitude. And if that is the case, then I think this government does deserve more credit than we're giving it. But I think that that might not entirely be the case, but that is where we should be headed. So in uh, keeping that uh, in view then, uh, you know, I, I keep coming back to some of the reactions here in India to the entire, um, you know, the entire trip. Um, because uh, people here feel that in some way the BJP government, uh, Modi is completely uh, neglecting some of the realities that uh, India is going through, which is with its uh, economy, which is with uh, Kashmir. Uh, And while this trip and the address at the UN, uh, everything seemed to uh, point towards India trying to garner support of the, um, you know, Western uh, leaders for Kashmir. Uh, I think uh, if we are to kind of transpose what happened in Houston in India, uh, I would find it very hard that he would be able to fill up a a stadium uh, with a similar uh, cohort of people, right, which is upper middle class uh, Indians, which is exactly what all of uh, the, the stadium in Houston was filled with. Uh, and I, I think we can safely assume that any Indian in Houston would be fairly upper middle class even uh, for American standards. Now, uh, while Houston is clearly an outpost for India uh, in uh, America, and while these people uh, would be fairly uh, influential members of that society, uh, I think in if you do a similar rally in uh, India, the only 50,000 people or maybe even more that would fill it up uh, would be the so-called uh, BJP Bhakts, right? And, uh, and Modi Bhakts. Uh, it won't be uh, people like you and me. Uh, I think even if people like you and me were curious uh, as to hear what the Prime Minister would have to say in such a gathering, uh, just the way pitchforks would come out amongst our uh, you know, fellow uh, Indians from, you know, the communities and uh, groups of society that we live in uh, would kind of deter us from wanting to go for some of these rallies. So is this building of soft power uh, outside of India and, you know, like, like you pointed, this, this whole civilizational, um, you know, understanding that we want Indians and the Indian diaspora to have, uh, does that kind of alienate what this... Uh, this India and this younger India, and the, uh, even, even if we talk about the upwardly mobile India, feel about uh, this government, or is this something Modi is completely happy to completely, uh, you know, step aside from and, and not really care about? Because uh, somehow the math just doesn't add up, right? Like, does fifty thousand to a lakh Americans or Britishers uh, from the diaspora, uh, they're not going to vote for him? Uh, they potentially the impact of the influence they're going to have on the government there from the money that they uh, put into elections uh, in their respective countries uh, or from the power that they influence through culture and through business uh, in their countries. Uh, I mean, the game is very long, right? It's going to take a lot for Satya Nadella, for instance, to say that I'm Indian first uh, in, in a 
society and culture that is kind of demonize that kind of thinking uh, but that doesn't apply to the chinese for instance uh, and i agree with you on that but uh, is that a long game that he's playing at the expense of what indians feel and are kind of going through on a day to day basis out here i think definitely a it is a long game for the indians abroad and he has two very well demarcated playbooks there is a playbook for india where you know of course there's always talk in the domestic media of uh, india's historic greatness india's civilizational greatness he'll have is uh, you know ideological henchmen to connect with the masses in the form of a yogi adityanath in the form of a pragya thakur he'll always have those he'll also have uh, you know a uh, a henchman in the form of a shopandas gupta in the upper house of the parliament who will essentially counter a sashi tharur from the congress side so he has the indian side quite clamped down and he has a very good handle on it because remember the bjp was at least after independence the original brahmin banya party so they had absolutely no connect with the scores and scores of you know obcs and scs and sts where finally now under his leadership he's been able to bring together the entire hindu vote bank onto one side and that is all because of him and his henchmen that he selected whereas when you go abroad you don't need to do something as drastic as uh, that abroad all you have to do is to call out or to get all indians onto a common plank and for that his playbook is very simple it is that you know obviously he's not going to talk about india's economic shortcomings when he goes abroad and i think even the bjp knows that economics is one of their weakness economic management the country's wealth management is one of their weaknesses so why would we expect a modi or any member of parliament or government to go abroad and actually talk about these issues they're not going to do it openly these conversations might come up in uh, you know these issues might come up in conversations with uh, american corporates with investments coming into india but they're not going to do that publicly what the indians abroad need or what the government thinks they want is a sense of pride and is a sense of a muscular india and a sense of the indian identity being strong again these are indians you know whose forefathers might have left india they might have left india 30 or 40 years ago so for them to feel connected with you know the land of their birth or the land of their origin i think that is what modi is going for so abroad it is a very long game and it is also a very long game in india just that we don't see it that way we obviously see the economy and the news on that on a day to day basis and we feel outrage when and rightly so i should add uh, when uh, pragya thakur or a yogi adityanath says something inflammatory but that is the civilizational learning that is being meted out to the uneducated masses to the downtrodden that is the education that we're imparting them and if you think about it objectively india is the only power which could stake a similar claim to china to be an ancient civilization of course not as strong a claim as china because they've existed within their current boundaries for about 5000 years but if you were to think of the construct of india even from you know for millennia it was always broadly the land sandwich between you know the khyber pass and burma it was always that land and bounded by the oceans and the seas that we have so if india actually now wakes up and we think of ourselves in civilizational terms 
I think that is a win-win for everyone, Indians at home and Indians abroad. So these two very well and clearly demarcated playbooks are clearly being put to use. One has no use in the other. He's not going to bring the other playbook back here and talk about, uh, you know, talk about Facebook or talk about Twitter or talk about disaster management in local rallies in Patna. He's not going to do that. But he's also not going to go talk about the economy or uh, slag off the Congress uh, when he goes abroad. So I think we should take it, uh, we should approach it from that angle that these are two different playbooks and they're being put to do different ends. Right. And and I think as a marketer, I can only appreciate the approach because clearly this definition of consumer segments uh, <laughs> and a very clear messaging for each of them. And I think what, what has to be appreciated is just the scale of the operation, right? Uh, I mean, to kind of, uh, and, and I'm not talking about the event itself, uh, but just to be able to think this entire thing through, to be able to step out of what is the norm uh, and to say that uh, this would work. And I remember very quickly uh, before we close the segment, you, uh, we were having a discussion the other day about this and you were talking about how he's played some of the uh, people uh, so correctly in terms of uh, their participation and their roles, including our external affairs minister. So if you want to just quickly shed light on, you know, his entire role during the US tour while Modi was drumming up support and drumming up uh, you know, just the decibel levels around uh, the Kashmir decision and around India's place uh, in history and in the world right now. Uh, what the, uh, you know, what uh, the external affairs minister was doing in uh, the US. Yeah, and uh, it, in fact, again, goes to Modi very clearly knowing what his strengths are and what his weaknesses are. He's not going to be able to engage with the whole diplomatic core, the diplomatic circuit, the Washington consensus. He's not going to be able to converse in those terms. He's not going to be able to make India's point forcefully. What he can do is he has a very strong mass connect and he has a very strong connect with, you know, fellow so-called strongmen all over the world. He has a very good relationship with uh, Abe in Japan. He has a very strong relationship with uh, Netanyahu in Israel, although he uh, might not be in office for much longer. He has a very strong, he had a very strong relationship with uh, David Cameron and of course with uh, Donald Trump. So he knows that that is the gallery that he has to play to and he's left the diplomatic core, the circuit to India's foreign minister who's actually a diplomat, who was India's senior most ranking uh, foreign diplomat and he's now been made the foreign minister. So he was the former US ambassador, uh, Indian ambassador to the US, and he knows these circuits very well. So what Subramaniam Jaishankar did on this trip, while Modi was busy uh, talking to the galleries and the masses, what he did was very quietly get in a few uh, meetings with a few high-ranking uh, department secretaries. So he met with uh, Mike Pompeo, he met with uh, the Homeland Secretary, while he also went on a charm offensive on all these think tanks with Atlantic uh, Consensus, Atlantic uh, Council, with uh, many Washington think tanks. He was interviewed by the CNA. He was interviewed on interviews, interviewed by the former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. He was interviewed, uh, you know, by so many channels, which actually frame the so-called Washington Consensus which has always been lukewarm to India's national aspirations. The issue with them has always been right from 1947 that uh, in his own words, you know, it's a bit like Goldilocks porridge. 
you have to stir it just right you don't want a very strong india and you also don't want a very weak india and till about 1980s or even maybe about 1970 it was always a case of not having a very weak india because india was the democratic bulwark in this region whereas now it has switched to you know them not wanting india very strong so as a consequence till about 2005 we had no defense purchases from the us so from 1965 to 2005 we had zero defense purchases from the us and now we actually talk about interoperability the indian and us armed forces being able to operate together we had yuddha bias uh, culminating just a few weeks ago and a couple of videos from that went viral so we would never have thought of such a thing uh, coming to pass in uh, the decades gone by so it's a very clear diplomatic charm offensive by india's foreign minister who knows these circuits very well and he's put him to good use because modi again uh, you know domestically he was an outsider to delhi he never worked in delhi so he had to rely on a few empowered bureaucrats to get things right for him and that's exactly what he's doing with his foreign and uh, security policy with ajit doval and subramaniam jayashankar so i think subramaniam jayashankar is a person to watch out for going ahead because if we know the one strong suit of this government it's actually their foreign policy and then that is where the external affairs minister jayashankar will have a very strong role to play and i think we've uh, you know we've really lucked out with uh, such a strong foreign minister who's able to go to all these fora and he made india's point india's views on kashmir very forcefully very coherently and he actually won most of the audience present he won most of the round tables he was speaking in so i think that is you know a victory which has gone unnoticed and of course the media is uh, going either crazy or gaga over uh, modi himself but i think that is the underbelly which we should not ignore because while modi has personally short circuited all of these uh, all of these cords and routes of diplomacy uh we can't entirely issue track to diplomacy we must remember that even during kargil uh, the two interlocutors appointed by uh, nawaz sharif and vajpay uh, niaz nayak from pakistan and rk mishra from india respectively they met about six times in june uh, remember the conflict was announced only in late may and all through june they met about six times and it finally fell through on june 27th when uh, you know the identity of the negotiators was leaked so we should we are not in a position and will never be in a position to entirely issue track to diplomacy or you know talks behind the doors or behind the curtains so for that a person like jayashankar is very important and modi is the least suited person to actually do something like that he believes in bombastic rhetoric he believes in big bang action so he's wholly the wrong person to do it so again credit where credits due is at least uh, picked a person who's able to execute that side of the equation well true and uh, i think we can just uh, sit back and kind of watch how uh, all of this plays out uh, clearly there seems to be a thought through strategy i think all the players are in place at least from a diplomatic and you know geopolitical standpoint uh, in kind of pushing the india agenda ahead uh, and i just hope that um you know for people listening to this and for a lot of people who felt um extremely underwhelmed by what happened i think just this sense of understanding this greater play you know that uh, 
that we believe at least uh, this government is on to um, would be quite interesting over the next uh, you know few months and years especially navigating choppy waters with uh, you know relations with our neighbors and everything and how the western uh, players will respond to uh, our stand on uh, most of these issues um, so yeah so on that note uh, i think uh, uday you want to kind of close with anything else yeah just one final thing i think uh, before we actually jump on the bandwagon to criticize modi which mostly seems to come from our circle we should appreciate the fact that just at the beginning of the previous century uh, we had stalwart leaders in the west like churchill and even at the beginning of india's independence and india's new and fresh journey eisenhower then uh, kissinger and nixon all of them who were so against india actually being a powerful country of india assuming her natural place in the world and no one gave us a prayer or a chance of being successful so from just in the 1960s henry kissinger and richard nixon abusing indira gandhi threatening indira gandhi and india with their uh, seventh fleet in the bay of bengal to actually modi addressing a rally in texas in houston and trump giving him the opening uh, opening act i think we should look back at this and realize that it has been a remarkable journey and if it takes a showman like modi who might have his weaknesses and i'm not going to you know sort of cover over his economic mismanagement and other missteps they exist but at least on this one count when indians within our own century of humiliation which only two centuries of humiliation in fact which ended in 1947 we are back to being at par economically with the us in terms of you know purchase power parity we are the third largest country in the world and now to actually our prime ministers and our diplomats being in a position to set the agenda on issues which matter to india which are kashmir and which are india's territorial integrity india's economic uh, well being i think we should be proud of ourselves great and uh, on that note we'll uh, wrap up this uh, episode and uh, we hope to uh, catch you all with uh, some more updates from the world that we live in and uh, from uh, ideas and thoughts out there and pieces of news that are interesting us uh, until then book your u2 tickets and uh, if not keep an eye out for modi's schedule across the world um, thank you so much